and welcome to Are We There Yet? Market Scale's online video podcast series that explores the most exciting, cutting edge, innovative projects in all of transportation and mobility. My name is Grant Harrell, and as your host, I enjoy the opportunity to speak with the voices of today's most exciting organizations. And truly, I'm very excited uh, for today's episode. I uh, have an incredible opportunity to speak with Bob Gallion, who's really a pioneer uh, within energy storage and battery technology development and commercialization. Bob has over 43 years of experience in the industry and is very active uh, today with numerous companies and organizations within the industry. So we're very excited to have the opportunity to speak with him today. So Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Uh, hello and welcome to Are We There Yet? I'm honored to be able to join Are We There Yet? Because I believe we really are on the topic that we're going to discuss today. Well, I'm, I'm excited to hear that. And, and it's a question that I really look forward to asking you because I think in terms of energy storage, um, I can't think of a better individual to answer that question for us. And so if you don't mind, would would love to just jump right into the Are We There Yet? series question and, and ask you uh, as we talk about the electrification movement, Bob, are we there yet? We definitely are there, and I can say that with great, great uh, uh, respect to the industry because uh, back in the 1990s, after uh, developing uh, skill sets for 20-plus years, I was assigned the project called the EV-1, and many people don't know the precursor to the EV-1 was called the Impact. So I was honored to work with uh, Dr. Paul McCready and the guys at AeroVironment and General Motors Corporation as a young engineer working in Delco Remy Division of General Motors to develop the lead acid batteries that went into the EV1. It wasn't until later in the development of that vehicle that we converted over from lead acid to nickel metal hydride because we knew that lead acid was too heavy, but the car met every mission, every technical mission it was chartered to uh, meet, it met. So that movement was uh, basically stalled out because at the time, many of the car companies were not able to meet the uh, uh, see, uh, the combined average fuel economy uh, numbers that the federal government had given. And so the federal government did roll back those requirements. And at that time, we had two major projects going on here in the United States. The one was the EV1 uh, fleet, which was never sold. It was only leased. And then we, uh, you had the Ford Motor Company working on the Ford Ranger project with those electrified um, electric uh, vehicles that were used by the uh, Detroit Edison guys up in, in the uh, Detroit area as um, uh, commercial vehicles, so to speak, uh, doing normal routine uh, maintenance on the power grid. But in any event, uh, Grant, it stalled out in the 1990s. But now here we are in the 2020s, and it's very clear since about 2010, 2011 timeframe, when uh, Nissan, uh, Tesla, General Motors started rolling out some of their uh, first generation electric vehicle uh, of this generation, we did we start seeing that momentum picking up. And as that momentum picked up, we started seeing that there were very important topics that we needed to address, including not only the battery design, but the vehicle design itself for uh, long range and sustainable driving and the ability to refuel those vehicles are, are still uh, being developed and problematic in some ways. So uh, I think there was a speech given at the battery show last year by the gentleman from Ford Motor Company that put it better than anybody I've ever heard. The deployment of the electric vehicles 
and the dispatchability of refueling those vehicles have to align very well. So the charging infrastructure has to be deployed at the same rate as the electric vehicles are deployed out of the field. And today we see all the car companies working on this very topic where they're putting in the charging infrastructure. Now, you mentioned uh, earlier in our discussions prior to going on air, Elon Musk's launch of this electric uh, truck, the Cybertruck, uh, clearly, Elon's uh, uh, people were uh, some of the pioneers in this area where they actually put the um, charging system infrastructure out there along with the vehicles uh, so that they could get these vehicles charged. So uh, we always have pioneers in the field. Henry Ford did it back in the internal combustion era, and I think Elon may be one of those guys considered in the future being a pioneer in the electrification movement. But yes, we are, it is here and will be here to stay. So are we here yet? Absolutely. And the momentum is picking up dramatically. That's so exciting to hear. Well, you're, you're definitely included uh, within that group of pioneers uh, within EV and energy storage today and this uh, really uh, revolution that we're seeing. And so I know that the industry is very appreciative of, of Elon and your work and others that have really um, supported, developed this industry since the very early stages, as you mentioned, with GM and some of the other projects that you were involved with. So really appreciate you sharing that. Um, kind of bringing us to today, as, as you shared, I think you did an, an incredible job of kind of, you know, relating some of that past experience to kind of where we are today and some of the reasons um, why this is all coming together. Um, one of those major components being the, the charging infrastructure, as you shared. Um, would love to learn a little bit more about what you're working on today. I know that you uh, are involved supporting a number of, of companies and organizations, and, and I know that I'm so impressed uh, with your work today and, and really leading the industry within uh, many of those projects. Would you mind telling our uh, listeners a little bit more about what you're up to these days? Well, Grant, in order for me to do that, I got to give a little bit of the historic background. You know, after working sure. uh, 21 years at General Motors, GM did an excellent job of giving me good basic education and training. I was assigned major projects throughout my career, having 17 different jobs in that 21 year period of time and going through the executive training program before they spun out the components group. So examples. Mathematical modeling uh, with Dr. Hiram Gu at the General Motors Research Center in my younger years, we were saving enormous amounts of money by properly designing and building batteries using mathematical modeling. Uh, assigned the project for the uh, Intech separator manufacturing plant. Deploying a new technology separator was not a, an easy task, but it was a needed task, and we created the best separator in the world for lead-acid batteries at that time. Um, and then, of course, the EV1 project was a, a, a real breadwinner at that time, but it was uh, rolled back just because the uh, government repealed the uh, uh, CAFE requirements. And then uh, uh, after we got spun out of uh, Del uh, Delphi, uh, or out of Delco Remy Division GM into Delphi, I should say, uh, was assigned a special project where we were putting in process control plans, operator worksheets, and all the quality control metrics for all 13 lead acid batteries in seven different countries around the world. Not a trivial, not a trivial task by any sense of the imagination. And I decided at that point in time, uh, after getting up to chief engineer level in the corporation, it was time for me to do something different. So I left the company and I started my own company, ran it here in Noblesville, Indiana for a period of eight years. Uh, it was called Towis Incorporated, named after a small city up in Michigan. But we did predominantly uh, battery consulting work and uh, uh, education and training and, and uh, consulting work. Also started a battery laboratory and a uh, materials analysis laboratory. 
Now, after that, I, I sold the company to Magna International to be the seed of what they call Magna eCar division of Magna International. So I was in that business for roughly three years before, again, I had a great opportunity where a young man approached me after giving a speech in Shenzhen, China, uh, about uh, battery technology on behalf of SAE International, uh, Dr. Robert Zung, who was the CEO of ATL at the time, asked me to come to China and work with him in developing and building a new company, which was later called CATL, which became the biggest battery company in the world within about five years from the time I landed in China. And many people yes. asked the question, Bob, why did you go to China and work? I said, well, for one thing, both North America and Europe were behind. They weren't ready for the electrification movement, but I wanted to take my skill sets to a location that would maximize the utility of the uh, basic education and training, uh, both of the corporations and self-developed uh, education and training to use those skill sets to help improve the ecology of the world. My degrees were in biology and chemistry, but I spent 47 years in engineering and international business. So the combination of that education and training in chemistry and biology sort of made me my own environmentalist in my own sense, not a tree hugger, but a, a socially responsible environmentalist that apply your knowledge and technology in a way that makes a difference, not by just pronouncing, but doing. And I think, uh, Grant, that's probably the most important thing. Uh, and the reason that I went to China was I could see that there was an opportunity to use a set of skills to make the world a better place for our future generations. So I hope that answers your question. Very much so. Very much so. No, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, just just the overview and kind of leading up to some of the, the projects that you're working on today. Um, I know we talked about a, a little bit earlier within our conversation before going on air uh, about the Battery Show and what an incredible event uh, and conference that that is each year. I really enjoyed the opportunity recently to attend uh, this year's conference and was just so impressed with the number of attendees and companies and business activity. Um, would love, um, you know, to hear a little bit more about your involvement with that uh, industry association, with that conference and event that's held uh, each year, and uh, maybe even share with our, our uh, listeners a little bit more about where the conference is today and some of the um, exciting projects that uh, you're involved uh, with within uh, that organization. Sure, sure. And I'll finish up with answering the, the first question that you asked yeah. before, Grant. I apologize because yes. I not at all. I got off a Not little bit of a tangent, but part of my commitment to the to our United States society and to our government was when I came back from China as I as I retired from CATL because I needed to get back home after having uh, several grandchildren born and uh, elderly parents that needed to be taken care of. I came back and now became a, a part of the family again and uh, integrated back into our society. I needed to turn back some of the things that uh, needed to be. Uh, return to our society. And I promised our U.S. government I would work as, with as many companies as I possibly could. And to answer your point, I work in no less than eight different electrochemical systems a day with multiple consulting roles with many companies and advising them on what to do and how to do the proper way with the skill sets that I've developed over a lifetime. But that can also applies to the battery show in many ways. Uh, this coming year will be I believe my 11th year as being the chairman of the Battery Show. Each year we put together an advisory board that pulls in some of the best of the best in the industry. And we uh, advise the informal market people are the ones that, that host the Battery Show. 
on who we need to put into the speaking roles and what are the key topics of the time. This last year was phenomenal. Uh, we never seen anything quite like it. Uh, around 800 plus exhibitors on the exhibition floor. And we had so many key topics in those three days of conference session. And I'm just fortunate to be the host of that show, uh, being the chairman and introducing our keynote speakers, being part of the panel sessions and summarizing what the show entails so that we can make the show better next year. Next year's show is going to be phenomenal. You know, after 14,000 plus people this year's this year's show, I think next year will be even bigger. We just got to figure out how to take care of all the traffic flow. <laughs> so great problem. Yeah, great yeah. problem. Very good. Well, I, I I was so impressed with 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 the conference. Um, I know too, and you touched on it a little bit, but uh, that that's not all uh, of what's keeping you busy today. You mentioned some of the different chemicals and consulting roles that you're uh, involved with. Um, I understand also a, a leadership role uh, within SAE, uh, as you as you shared a little bit about. What are you know, and and, and would love you know any uh, any any comment or insight about that or any other projects that you're working on. But you know what what are in total, and and I know you know this 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 is a question where there's you know a, a lot of answers because I know you you do a lot but what what are some of the things that you're most excited about today that you're most passionate about today um as, as you shared with us and are we there yet question we are here uh in terms of this um uh, this, this revolution that we're seeing uh within energy storage and electrification but would love you know from your perspective uh, to learn a little bit more about you know what are some of the the projects and things that you're most excited about today well, the things I'm most excited about today, Grant, is not just lithium-ion batteries. Clearly, lithium-ion batteries is a huge improvement from where we were at even two decades ago. Uh, we, we see, because of the modern tools that we have, and I jokingly said two weeks ago in another conference I was hosting, back in the day in college, I was using slide rules to do all my calculations because we didn't have calculators at that time. I think the important the important thing here is today we have sophisticated tools called computers. We have sophisticated mathematical models. We have sophisticated artificial intelligence that's increasing our intellectual capacity at a, a phenomenal rate. Uh, some futurists are saying that we're doubling our intellectual capacity now at a rate faster than seven years, it may be even less than five years, maybe even less than four years. We're doubling wow. the human's capacity for intellectual growth at a phenomenal rate. And why is that exciting to me, Grant? It tells me that we will make major breakthroughs in scientific principles that we've never even dreamed of. In just the short time that I've been alive on this planet, we've seen such amazing changes we can hardly imagine. Just most recently with the Webb telescope, you see the guys uh, that work in outer space and some of the phenomenal things that they're discovering about our universe. We're seeing the same kind of thing happening here on our own planet with respect to new scientific principle and understanding. The announcement of the sodium ion battery by CATL last year kind of rocked the, rocked the world because the guys use scientific principle, mathematical models to create lattice structures that use a different ion rather than lithium. Well, magically we say, well, there may be other elements on the periodic table that we can use in different combinations to get those kind of electrochemical potentials in the way that we will create new value for mankind. At the same time, there's going to new, maybe new breakthroughs that may 
uh, antiquate the battery system in the next few decades because we are making major discoveries each year in the in different fields of scientific principle. So hopefully that answers your question. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. And and, and I, I love the point, too, that, you know, we, we, we certainly are working some of the specific chemistries and technologies that we know about today. But but I love the idea that, um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll certainly continue to see revolutions uh, and transformations within the industry and the science and the technology itself, uh, probably from things that, that we don't even know about or can imagine uh, today. So um, I, I love that idea um, as well. When when we talk about this electrification movement, and um, it has so many applications into other industries and other verticals. I had a conversation not too long ago within the series about how kind of we're seeing um, the, the, this merger right now between kind of the um, you know mobility and transportation and, and the built environment and all of the innovations that we're seeing here um, are kind of changing the way um, that, that the built environment is designed. People are moving around in different ways, micro mobility, you know, for example, and and scooters and different forms of transportation, uh, drones are delivering products. Um, and so we're seeing effects already, you know, from developments in transportation and mobility into so many different other industries. Uh, and, and I love to talk about that within the Are We There Yet series, but, you know, maybe maybe refining it as much as you wanted to expand. But if we're kind of talking about, you know, the electrification movement in terms of transportation and um, mobility, where do you see a lot of this headed five years, 10 years, you know, 20 years from now, um, any, any, any guesses, uh, you know, forecast on, you know, what things might look like in terms of the, the way that we move around and how that's powered. I, I just, you know, would, would love to hear, um, you know, some of your imagination on maybe what's kind of the end result of, of a lot of what we're, uh, we're working on today. And that I know that you're really, really passionate about. Well, Grant, first, um, <clears throat> In almost every interview I ever do, I always talk about the five golden rules, the five golden rules of electrification. And I'm sure my buddies at SAE uh, will probably be tired of hearing it, but they will hear it again. Because in order for the electrification to move forward, and I think this will stay almost as an immutable list that was helped contrive by Dr. Jonas Brisa and myself during my tenure at Magna as president of Magna ECAR, that we came up with the five golden rules because they're so important. And, and I'll get to your question because the background for the answer to that question is buried inside those five golden rules. Safety will always be number one. The preservation of human health and life are of utmost importance. Whether it be the mobility sector where we're in a vehicle that's required to be able to withstand a, a collision or a barrier impact, and people survive and walk away from the vehicle, or whether it's an energy storage system that we put out in the middle of a field somewhere where that um, people can enter the compartment safely and effectively, either as a technician or as a firefighter and, and feel perfectly safe without getting injured or killed. Safety will always be the number one in the five golden rules. Second is performance, and performance is measured in many different metrics. It could be energy, it could be power, low temperature performance, high temperature performance, shock, vibration, so many, so many different uh, performance metrics. Uh, the, 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 the safety, the performance, and the life comes in third place because without having a good life expectancy, the total cost of ownership will not be there. You have to be able to afford something that's going to last a period of time that you get the total value back out of whatever it is you spend to, 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 to make it or buy it. And then the fourth is cost. 
the affordability of many of the electric vehicles that have been made in the past have been rather expensive. But now many of the car players are coming in with brand new models. In fact, in a speech just last week, I, I was mentioning it, even at the Hungarian Battery Conference about four weeks ago, I mentioned there's almost 450 new electric vehicle models that are chartered coming out uh, uh, com com combined worldwide over the next uh, couple of years. And wow. you know, we've gone up to a phenomenal number of electric vehicles around the world, but the U.S. and Europe are lagging behind Asia in many ways. But the, the, but the cost is something that is really important for us to be able to meet uh, a, a, an expectation by the general consumer to be able to afford to buy it. And the fifth one has got a lot of tentacles. It's called environmental. The environmental aspect of the five golden rules include the ability to mine these precious minerals from Mother Earth in a safe and effective manner without exposure of these chemicals and materials that you're mining to uh, create health hazards for people that are mining through the processing, through the building of those raw materials into battery systems and the ability to put those battery systems into battery modules and packs that go into either transportation or energy storage sector and to be able to, man be able to manage safely by first and second responders in the event that there's an accident or a, a misfortune of some kind of a, an incident. And then finally, the recovery of those materials is uh, coming back as being recycled or repurposed in some way, shape or form and returning those minerals back to their original form to be reused in batteries. So to answer your question, you have to go through the five golden rules to know where you're going to go in the future because electrification has those five key elements and those five key elements will help discipline you for the future. So in the coming generations, I can foresee that we're seeing a revolution in transportation sector, just like the Cybertruck that was announced yesterday by Elon. Look at the plethora of new EV models coming out with all the different car companies around the world. Look at how the transportation sector is being changed by the invention of construction equipment that is electrified. The last thing I did in China before leaving, uh, retiring from CATL was drive a 22 ton backhoe that was totally electrified that would run for eight hours on a single charge, doing nothing but dirt, digging dirt or rocks or soil uh, in a totally quiet environment other than the scraping and the digging. So, uh, and I also see uh, if you go on the website of some of the agricultural equipment, uh, you, you'll find uh, many of the companies are making electrified tractors for agricultural sector. You'll see underwater uh, drones, aerial drones. There's a real movement right now on electrifying a lot of new technologies. You know, literally, uh, when I when I sit here and I look at a simple little uh, electric electrical device we got laying in our uh, pocket or on a desk, that really started the electrification movement because what happened in China wasn't a master plan by the Chinese government in any way, shape, or form. It was an evolutionary process. Every country in the world were shipping all of their consumer electronic product build-out requirements to China because they could build it more cost-effectively. In essence, what they did is they enabled China to create an infrastructure of mining and processing and building electronic devices. It was a matter of taking electronic devices and scaling it into to vehicles. That was the main breadwinner for China over those years. And little did we know it would also benefit the Chinese uh, population by creating a cleaner environment for their people to live in. 
So in some ways, China could be considered a role model in how they did it. It's just the rest of the world enabled them to do it the way they did it. But Mm -hmm. I can foresee now that that movement has started. It is catching on in Europe even faster than it is in North America right now. Uh, Going over for the Hungarian Battery Conference I mentioned a few minutes ago, it was very clear that the Europeans see this as a major mission, and they are the fastest growing uh, electrified group outside of Asia right now. And then the United States and North America, Canada and Mexico included, will be uh, the next in line. But I can also see, uh, Grant, that it's bubbling up like mad right now in Australia and India and soon to be in uh, South America. I get calls from all over the world for people wanting to talk to me about what they need to do and how they need to do it in order to electrify because it is becoming a worldwide movement. So within the next 20 years, we're we're in the mid-2020s now, we will look into the future in the year 2040 and going into 2050 and say, yeah, the electrification movement is here. And are we there yet? No, we're not there yet totally, but we're getting there, okay, mm-hmm. on a worldwide mm-hmm. movement. So hopefully that answered your question. Very much. More, more Yes, yeah, it's a bit better than I could have hoped for. I really appreciate uh, that, and I, I love the application of the uh, the five golden rules uh, into that answer as well. So thank you so much for that. Um, one other question that, that, that I would love to ask you and, and get some of your insights uh, on, as you mentioned, the five golden rules and kind of how that all applies um, you know, within the development of energy storage technologies and vehicles and the importance of, you know, really the, the, the focus on safety, uh, as you shared. Um, but then, you know, some of the other important characteristics, such as, as cost, uh, as, as you shared and, and, and life, uh, lifetime life cycle of the vehicle itself and that being justified, um, you know, assuming the continued um, evolution uh, of and you know, commercial development of, of everything related to transportation and mobility and, and EV. Um, we have also um, a, a need uh, that remains in terms of a, a grid uh, infrastructure to support all of this. And um, we also need uh, better ways to, to, to generate energy, better sustainable ways of, of developing the energy uh, itself. So we'll just be curious, um, your perspective um, kind of outside of the EV and transportation, energy storage, um, you know, side of things that we've kind of focused today's conversation on. Are you seeing developments within the grid and the way that we generate uh, energy that will allow, you know, this evolution within transportation to continue? Well, certainly, as we put more and more renewable energy on the grid, it creates its own set of problems, Grant, as you probably already know that when you get above about 30% of renewable energy on a grid, it, it makes it become a little bit unstable, which means now the utility companies have to put in different infrastructure in order to stabilize the grid because the amount of renewable energy, as we all know, as I sit here, my face gets brighter and darker, brighter and darker is because the sun is going in and out behind clouds. So, you know, solar, only occurs when you got good bright sunlight and it, and the, the wind only generates when the wind is blowing. Uh, but those in themselves as they're being generated, if they're not put into some kind of energy storage device, uh, also complicate how the grid handles that energy. So um, I know there's a real urge for everybody to go to renewable energy, but we also have to match up the technology that makes the grid stable with those new additions of that renewable energy. And many people don't like it, but uh, making the comments that uh, even nuclear energy in some people's mind is a clean and renewable energy. 
we may not know how to handle some of the nuclear waste as efficiently as we'd like to today, but the future generations will figure it out because as they get smarter about how this material works, they will figure out what to and do with this material in the future. Uh, so those are great questions, Grant, but they are not answered yet because we don't even know what the next generation renewable energy is. Many people think that hydroelectricity is considered renewable energy because the rivers will always flow. Uh, many people think that wave action could be another made one. Another could be just the tidal movement where you put huge generators uh, down in the ocean bed floor and use the currents of the ocean to generate electricity could also be one of those. But there's lots of new energy and there's even talk about using space uh, as part of the energy generation where you actually beam some of that energy from outer space back to planet Earth by using large uh, collectors that can generate the electricity from direct sunlight and project it back to the Earth. That in itself has potential, but has a lot of technical uh, uh, things that need to be addressed. Some of that sounds rather futuristic, but I know people are doing it right now. They're working on those developments as we speak. Yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. And, and, and I love the point too. And I, and I definitely agree that, that I think that, and in terms of the energy itself, it, it, it's a, it's a healthy mix, renewable sources, sustainable sources, maybe some traditional, but I think that, that ultimately it's, it's a mix. And I love the idea too, that, uh, it's great to have a conversation and think about these things today. But, but the reality is, is, is we probably don't know in, in 10 and 20 years what some of those developments and, new sources probably will will even look like. And so um, I, I love the answer and I think uh, fits very well within the very futuristic, you know, are we there yet cutting edge technology series. Uh, and I love the fact too, uh, that uh, your answer in terms of the uh, electrification movement uh, is yes, that we are uh, here and, and enjoying um, working within that movement today. So really appreciate, um, Bob, your time and your insights uh, today um, and very much uh, your work uh, over your 43 uh, year plus career um, within the industry. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for taking the time to stop by today and uh, and have a conversation. I've enjoyed it. And I know that our audience uh, will very much as well. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Grant, to help spread the word. Electrification is here. Are we here yet? Yes, we are. And uh, your opportunity for me to speak today has been very much appreciated. Thank you. Very good. Very good. Thank you so much, Bob. Bob.